My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is, is Anamorphology. The Invasion. The Visitor. The Encounter. The Message. The Predator. The Capture. The Stranger. The end, The Secret. The Android. The Forgot. The Reaction. The Chain. The Unescape. The, 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 the Decision. The Spell. The Departure. The Sound. The Discovery. The Proposed Threat. The Mutation. The Separation. The Deception. The Suspicious Existence. The Extreme Sacrifice. The Diversion. The Answer. The Beginning. And my full name is full address here. My chosen name is Joy Sleeper. I have elaborate reasoning for this, but ultimately I just like the sound of the word. My game name is Avian Appeaser, or AA. It doesn't mean anything in particular, but uh, it's kind of followed me. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Nice. Yeah. So nice. nice. <laughs> That's good. I was going to ask you about your game name. You just anticipated it perfectly. Uh, uh, I have, I have a lot of them, so... Perfect. I guess the internet was established enough at this time that like Apple Grant wasn't really anticipating. No, the thing that was amazing to me is he talks about email fatigue and this book was written in 2000. And I'm like, oh no, like how have we not solved this problem (laughs) in 20 years? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So Gray, Elmas Chronicles, (laughs) big takeaways. Uh, I don't I don't like him. I still don't like him. This Nothing not in this book made me like the Elemist more than I previously liked the Elemist. I'm a little shocked and saddened. Tuman, he's so relatable. He's relatable enough and I see yeah, I, I went back and re-listened to my um prediction for this one, none of which I got right. <laughs> except for I don't think I'm gonna like the Elemist. Still accurate, but Joyce, you said at the end of the last of my prediction that you really liked this one. I did. And I was like, oh, no, that means there's going to be pain. And there was. So <laughs> there was. And I really, you know, there was a lot of pain, not necessarily my favorite trope, but I have a lot of feelings about how this book was constructed. Hmm. And I'm very excited to talk about them. Yeah, that sounds interesting. So, yeah, Joyce, why did you want to come on again for this one? Uh, for well, for one, yes, pain. There is lots of that here. Um, for another, I have like probably way too many thoughts about like the metaphorical, like the way it applies to life in general. I guess, which is incredibly pretentious. But you know what? Can, what else can <laughs> uh, we do? No, with I love it. An unspecified degree of English knowledge. I mean, we're gonna spend like two hours talking about this middle grade book, and we're called anamorphology. Obviously, we're here for the pretentious discourse. I came <laughs> ready to talk about the GNS theory of role playing and game theory generally. So cool. nice. It's gonna get nerdy. Excellent. All right, Jenny, thoughts so and feels? I didn't remember this one almost at all. I remembered that the Elemist was a gamer, but I, I didn't really remember any feelings in either direction about it. I did remember the framing device, uh, the prologue and the epilogue, which we will definitely talk about. And I knew I was going to have some feels about that, which I did. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought the like the culture was really well built. Like I feel like Apple Grant has like learned a lot about world building mm-hmm. and like how to develop an alien culture that feels different but still like relatable and you know, not quite human, just human. I feel like they were they were like saving up the uh the, these Ketrins and they really wanted to use them somewhere. Yeah. They, they, they a really cool concept. Yeah. They built this really fascinating civilization i i've never had your your feelings about the elemist gray i've never like felt that negatively about him slash them in this case them as an actual plural pronoun not gender neutral but i don't know i I had a lot of sympathy for the character yeah i didn't come away not liking the elemist or anything fair ted i i have always thought positively about this one 
yeah, rereading, it's just like so good. It's one of the, I think, better written installments in the series overall. I think the only thing that, the only thing that I would complain about is just kind of a meta level, like, it's a lot of time and attention on one fairly minor character. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> and it's a cool, I really like how they've worked their way backwards from like a benevolent godlike chess master figure to like a plausible origin story for the Elemist. But he's <laughs> making a face. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, and so what? Like most of the most of the lingering feels is just the two chapters at the beginning and the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like yeah. the all the Ketrin stuff. I really, really enjoy it. Maybe father. It. But Yeah, oh my god, the father. I, I love, love father, that. that's so cool. All of my notes in that section were just Ah! Yes, it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. um, uh-huh. I also feel like there's a lot of good thematic stuff to dig into. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I will say I was frustrated by the ending just by where it ended. I was like, no, but you're just getting to the part that we really care about. And all of a sudden yeah. it's like, ah, uh, the end. Like, yeah, what, yeah, yeah. What? I mean, right, classic ending. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was very startled by the yeah. ending in, in part because still I get every every goddamn book. I'm like, I have so many minutes left to keep reading. And then I'm like, oh, no, just kidding. There's like a stuff at the end so the other meta complaint i have before we summarize it is that this is the last chronicles book and uh, like what i wouldn't have given for like a a, like yerk chronicles about the yerk homeworld or even the the long promised saxon chronicles that never came to fruition like i love this but if if it's the opportunity Opportunity cost of something else right the only way a chronicles could have been like less less relevant is if we got actually got the helmicron or nartek chronicles (laughs) Uh, well, we can, we can kind of like vaguely work in the war is bad angle, I guess, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I think that was a lot of my dislike for, for the, for the Elemist in general, but for this book, like I, I think it's really interesting. Like I love the sci-fi aspects of it, but in the context of the Animorphs, I thought it was, I'm just, I have a lot of like thoughts and questions about kind of how it was constructed and why. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we should get into it. Uh, so yeah, it must be different reading it without like, cause I didn't really remember it, but I knew it wasn't going to be relevant mostly. So I wasn't expecting that if you were like, Oh, this is the last Chronicles. It could shed all this light on the series. Then it would be very disappointing, which it probably was to me. Yeah. That was my whole, like a lot of my prediction was about how it was going to end up connecting to the Animorphs, Mm -hmm. not least because if you'll remember, the inside cover of this book is the Animorphs. Which, like, why? Leading us on. Random recognition. Teasing us. Yeah. Yeah, so you guys want to hear what happens in this book. I I do. do. In 60 seconds or less. Good luck. Go. Okay, but, like, time. Is time even real? (laughs) If we're, like, in the, like, the special place where we see all the lines of space-time, like, 60 seconds could be any length, right? This is true. Yes, we're at the point of the cone, or whatever the hell. <laughs> yes, it tastes like sea space. Okay, I'm sure you guys are really interested to know how this connects to the Animorphs, which is that there is a framing device around this entire Chronicles. I don't know if it is my favorite or least favorite part of the book. It's probably both. Uh, which is that someone is dying. It seems to be an Animorph and wants to know... Is this going to work out? Are we going to win? And the Elemist's like, I don't know. And then wants to know, like, well, who are you? You know, how dare you, etc. And the Elemist is like, okay, I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you a really long story. So he tells the whole story of his life. And it turns out that the Elemist started out as a Ketrin, which is the species named Tumen, on the planet Ket. This planet is super cool. I'm sure we'll talk about it in more detail. The Ketrin's basically like, 
constantly flap their wings to provide lift for these crystals in the atmosphere. At the beginning of the book, Tumen is a gamer whose game name is Elemist. And he's always going in, they play this game where they determine the fates of civilizations. And he's always picking the like optimistic, altruistic path. And he's always losing. And he gets called by his neighbor, a brilliant loser. His neighbor, Lakava. <laughs> his neighbor, Lakava. Love that. But because he is this brilliant loser, Lakava decides that he's going to sponsor Tumen for a place on this Z-space exploration ship that is going off soon. And this is like Tumen's dream. He's like, this is so exciting. I get to explore actual other worlds. So Tumen, his gamer friend, Aguela, they both get to go as non-essential staff on the ship. And they learn that the ship has a secret purpose. It's supposedly for exploration, but really the Ketrans encountered a hostile species. And so the Ketrans are going off to like find out more, find out what's going on, try to make peace with the Capucins before they, you know, destroy them or something. The, meanwhile, while this, these preparations are happening, they have a dance by with one of their, the other huge crystals. And we learn that on this world, communication is very difficult. They have incredibly advanced Uninet, I think they call it, like an internet on their specific crystal where they can communicate, like send mind messages or mems or, play or DMs or, yeah. to other people. But they can't communicate crystal to crystal, which is a super weird and super cool world setup. And so like they haven't seen this crystal in 19 years and they learn that this crystal has like overthrown the wise ones and has democracy and uh. is building an airfoil so they don't have to like provide as much lift. And also that they're working on communication technology that will let crystals communicate to each other despite the like intense background radiation or whatever on this planet. And the like the people on this crystal are a little cagey about this. So go back to the launching of this ship and before they can launch... An alien spaceship shows up, a Capucin spaceship, and blows up the crystal that Tumen lives on. It is very abrupt, jarring. No one really saw this coming. It's very anamorphs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so suddenly the crystal is destroyed. Everyone on it is dead. The only Ketrans alive are the ones in the ship. The only Ketrans from this crystal alive are the ones in the ship. And they're like, oh no, they're going to destroy all the other crystals. This is terrible. But they, they don't have any weapons. Ketrans as a whole, no weapons. So Tumen and his friend Aguela and Lakava and, you know, a few dozen other Ketrans are on this ship. They're able to shield. A fighter comes from the Capucin ship and tries to press through the shield. And Tumen takes part of a crystal spar and shoves it through the windshield and kills the pilot of this fighter. Then the ship is finally able to go into Z-space. They realize they need to go back and save people on the other crystals, and they use this fighter to do it. Tumen and his uh, sort of mentor, Lakaba, go into the ship, even though they're claustrophobic, they hate it. They figure out how to fly it, how to use the weapons, and they go back, and there's one crystal remaining on Ket, and the Capucins are about to destroy it. They take their fighter, and they destroy the Capucin ship instead. And then uh, there's like some leadership squabbles. Uh, Tumen's like, some other ships are going to show up. And then sure enough, they do. And they try to use the fighter to destroy the other ships. But before they can, the last crystal on Ket is blown up. And there are only like 72 or something uh, Ketrans surviving. They're all aboard this one ship, Searcher, and they flee the planet. So that's part one. What was the deal with the Capucins? 
Thank you. It turns out, we find out, so this last crystal that was blown up was the one they had the dance by with. Turns out they had figured out how to how to beam signals into deep space, like using a Z-space connection or something. And what they decided to beam was the game footage of, like, civilizations destroying each other because they were stupid. So this guy, Menno, who is this gamer from this other crystal, is like, yeah, we did this. They probably came because they thought they had to destroy a dangerous civilization before we destroyed everyone else. They were fooled by by a really good graphics. <laughs> Let this be a lesson to you, listeners. Video <laughs> games can cause violence. <laughs> also, retro graphics are the are for the win. <laughs> <laughs> That's such an important lesson. Unless, unless you know the Capitals would still be would still be like, wow, all these pixel plans are just blowing up. Evil. <laughs> Protect the pixel planets. (laughs) Okay, so, yeah, turns out they brought this on themselves. Great idea. So, um, I had been pronouncing them Capacins, which explains the chilly welcome. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) So that's first life. That's first life. Part two starts, second life, uh, when Tumin is now leader of these Ketrans who have fled and have not made any progress on on reestablishing their civilization in, what is it, 60-something years? Yep, just about. Because they're looking for another planet that's exactly like their planet. And And that is so (laughs) Sounds like you might disagree with some of (laughs) Tumin's choices here, Jenny. (laughs) I'm sorry, was I editorializing via tone? (laughs) Yeah, so Menno, everyone's still around. They seem to have pretty long lifespans. Uh, Tumin and Aguela are, like, coupled, officially coupled now, but no one's had any kids because they're waiting to find a planet that's exactly like their planet. Yeah, Ted's just shaking his head, and uh, I agree. Uh, Menno thinks that they should find, like, a, just adapt and, like, have a different lifestyle, not maybe fly in crystals in the air. And uh, Tumin and Aguela, yeah, and have children for the future of their race. And Tumin and Aguela are like, no, we are of the skies. We can't do this. The first rule is lift for all. It's true. We can see no other way except for having crystals that we, we support ourselves. Engines, what are those? Yeah, yeah. So this part picks up. It's 60-something years later. Tumin's in charge. They're investigating. This The searcher is still going around to all these different worlds. They've been to just dozens and dozens of worlds. None of them, weirdly, have had the right like <laughs> ability to support these crystals. And they find this watery moon. And they're like, ah, oh, water, that's never good for the lift we need for our crystals. But Aguela sees something beneath the water that looks almost like complex and crystalline. And so Tumen leaves the ship with Menno, goes in like their new like explorer pod, and uh, goes underwater, ends up ensnared with tentacles... And uh, the main ship comes to rescue him, and all of them die, except for Tumen. They all die, and their bodies get incorporated into this thing called the Father, which is this planet, single planet-wide organism that somehow, like, takes other bodies of creatures it has killed, all these different types of aliens, and connects to their minds and, like, runs their neurons or something. So their minds are part of it, even though they're not alive. So Father is lonely because it doesn't have any minds that are independent of it and keeps Tumen alive so that Tumen will play games. Just like mercilessly makes Tumen play all these games, like gives him sort of an illusion of his like life before, like on Ket, and keeps 
some facsimile of his friends and, you know, fellow Ketrans alive to, like, entertain him. But, like, Tuman knows they aren't real. So he's leading this sort of fake life where he is, like, has to play all these complex games. And then finally this game comes up that is called Music. Tuman's never heard of this before. And Father plays this, like, beautiful sound on this instrument. And Tuman is blown away. He's like, what is this? I need to learn how to do this. And the game is, like, you know, impress this fake audience better than Father. And Tuman, of course, can't. He doesn't know how to play this thing. But he figures it out and he keeps his knowledge hidden and he's like obsessed with this. He loves this music and he practices it in his mind and he puts all of his emotions for his lost world and his lost love and his lost friends into this music. And then finally, like the hundredth time they play, he plays this piece of music that just blows everyone away, including father. It's the first time he's ever won a game against father. Father tries to imitate him, but he doesn't have like the emotion underlying the music and he doesn't have the improvisational ability. So uh, Tuman keeps winning and then he keeps winning other games like Father's off his game. And Father retreats, goes off and sulks. And while he's while his mind is sort of absent, uh, Tuman figures out that he can connect to these corpses, basically, to these minds of these dead creatures that, whose bodies are preserved through their connection to Father and like download them somehow and like live in this widespread neural net. And he ends up beating father at his own game in that way, ends up defeating father, killing him, it's a little unclear, and then takes all of the minds that he's absorbed and keeps them inside his own somehow, even though he has this like limited brain capacity, he can't really access them in the right way, but finds where father was storing all of these spaceships from the other alien species that had crashed on the planet, takes a spaceship and figures out how to upload his many minds into a, like, it takes him like 30 years to build, like a complex blending of organic and machine life so that he can have all these minds. And then he flies away from his moon, blows it up, flies around the galaxy being like, not sure what to do now. I'm not really part of any species. All these species are part of me, but I can't really go join them. And comes across these two warring planets and interferes, stops the war. They're really mad about it. But he's like, nope, you can't kill each other anymore. And he's like, ah, this is what I'll do. I'll be a peacemaker. And so he goes around and uh, creates peace on lots of planets. Lots of species do seem to welcome him. And he's like, you know, becomes an honorary member of a lot of cultures. And it seems to be going really well. Then he goes back to these first two planets where he stopped the war realizes they like one of the planets there's no life the other planet they've like reverted to some very primitive form of life it's been like thousands of years or something he's like confused he's like what the heck happened and then someone else shows up someone we may recognize it was kind of fun actually reading this whole book being like when's cryak gonna show up this is when he shows up so cryak shows up he has this like planetoid ship thing full of like life forms but like maybe they're not real i don't know anyway he's like yeah, you you messed up. You like used these exploding asteroids to block the space between these planets so they wouldn't fight. It gave them the idea to like explode nuclear mines at each other. And one of them just got totally destroyed and the other one had no competition. So somehow that resulted in them just regressing. So yeah, Cryak's like, I didn't even have to interfere in this one. Most of the other worlds you interfered in, you did a good job. So I had to go in and destroy them. 
And the Elemist is like, what? No, that's real bad. So now he and Cryak are playing a game, but Cryak really has the edge. Cryak keeps preparing these situations where the Elemist will go in and Cryak will be like, you can save some people or you can save slightly more people, but not all people. And like, you know, he's just like messing with the Elemist's mind. He's destroying lots of stuff, undoing so much of what the Elemist did. And finally, the Elemist is like, I'm, I'm not winning at this. Like, how did I beat father? I figured out how to do something that he couldn't do. He's like, I don't know what that is with Cryak. I'm, I'm just gonna like, I, I can't be part of this destruction any longer. I'm just gonna leave. I'm so lonely. I am going to make myself an organic body. So he finds a planet where there are intelligent but primitive creatures, which don't have a name yet, but they're sort of a, I don't know, human deer scorpion blend and, you know, blue fur, no mouth, eye stalks. Sort of psychic psychic ability. (laughs) Some psychic ability. Yeah, he makes himself a body like one of those creatures and goes down. He makes like an avatar. Yeah, yeah. He makes himself an avatar. That's a good way to think about it. And he is able to stop one of the monsters that wants to kill them. They have tail blades, but they seem to not be like the fully effective tail blades we know and love. So they can't, they have these monsters that prey on them. And he just shoots one with his like beam weapon. And they're like, ah, we love you. And he takes a wife from among them. And oh, he names them Andalites, just in case anyone missed that. Yeah, he's the one who does that. And so he takes a wife, they have a kid, the kid dies of just like a really common Andalite disease. And he has a lot of feelings about this. And his wife's like, let's have another kid. And he's like, but that one might die too. And she's like, yeah, we just have a lot of kids. And then if we have more kids, then some of them will live. And so they do, they have five kids and two of them live and they have kids of their own. And then his wife dies and the Elmas is like, okay, I'm, this my time with these people is, is done. And, but he has learned a lesson from them if you have more kids, some of them will live. So he starts propagating life. He starts creating life on all these planets where life might not have existed. He makes planets like suitable to life when otherwise they wouldn't be. And he creates a species of his own. He creates the Pemelites. He creates them already evolved, so to speak, like already intelligent. He gives them a bunch of technology. He gives them laws against violence. And he gives them the mission to spread life. So they do even more than he could ever do of just spreading life everywhere. Finally, he so he's spreading life faster than Cryak can destroy life. But finally, Cryak catches up to him, and the Elemist has become more powerful, more resistant to damage by this time. So uh, he and Cryak are better balanced, and they start their fight again. And they go on this like battle throughout the galaxy. Lots of stuff gets destroyed in uh, sort of the the wake of this battle, but the Elemist like, if I can just destroy Cryak, then it's okay, I can go back and rebuild, I can go back and help those people. But Cryak uh, is losing and lays a trap for the Elemist. He causes him to emerge from Z-space near a black hole. And the Elemist realizes this before all of his component parts have left Z-space. He's being sucked into like the singularity at the center of the black hole. Part of him is also still in Z-space and he's like, don't come out, stay there. So his consciousness is like spread across all of these different, I don't know, parts of reality. And somehow this causes him to ascend. His physical body is destroyed, like Cryat comes and cleans up the pieces. But he has sort of popped into what we will remember, this sort of space where you see all the lines of space-time and because you're outside of it. 
he has ascended out of normal space, even beyond time in some ways. And he realizes that like, oh, Cryak, Cryak thinks he's one. He doesn't know I'm here. He's like, as soon as I show my hand, Cryak will figure out how to duplicate what I did and he will become this powerful and that's going to be bad. So he hangs back and waits until Cryak is about to destroy a planet, which it's not named, it's Earth. Cryak uh, is going to destroy it and the Alamist is like, oh no, there are tiny mammals who are going to grow up into a complex civilization there. I'll just like tweak the fabric of space time so that his like energy beams don't hit it. And Cryak like keeps shooting and is like, what's going on? This is so weird. Figures out the Elemist is there, joins him in this sort of ultra space place. And, and Elemist is like, oh, hi, you've joined me here. And Cryak's like, yeah, let's fight. And the Elemist is like, if we fight or if we play this game, we will destroy all of space and time and ourselves. Like we have too much power. We can't do that. And Cryak's like, well, we have to play the game. Otherwise, there's no point. And the is like, we could just sit and watch. And Cryak's like, no, I would <laughs> rather die. And <laughs> He does say I would rather die. Cryak is so, like, sinister, but hearing <laughs> you say, I would rather die than watch the universe makes him sound like such a 12-year-old. <laughs> yes. Well, he is also a gamer, so... Mm. <laughs> yeah, so he wants to play the game, and the Elmus is like, okay, but we're going to have to have rules. And Craig's like, yeah, all right, we have rules. And then somehow, before we watch any of the interesting parts, the book ends. (laughs) Whoa! (laughs) Why did you tell us about all that if it wasn't interesting, Jenny? (laughs) Okay, any of the what happens in the epilogue that really connect well to Animars. So this, you know, dying human is still dying. Has heard this whole story. The Alamist is like, yeah, so so now you know. And the human is like, so was I just a game piece? And, like, did you deliberately put me in this game? And the Elemist is like, no, you were a happy accident. And then the human is like, okay, well, tell me, did I did I make a difference? I I don't know how to summarize this. I feel like I just want to read it. I'm just going to read it. Just read it. Okay, then answer this, Elemist. Did I, did I make a difference? My life and my, my death, was I worth it? Did my life really matter? Yes, you were brave. You were strong. You were good. You mattered. Yeah. Okay, then. Okay, then. A small strand of space-time went dark and coiled into nothingness. And we all cried. And I said, this is extra backup for my endgame prediction, that one of them is going to die. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at this point, is that even a prediction? I don't know. I mean, I'm it could be David. It. You never know. <laughs> okay. All right. Good point. <clears throat> yeah. No comment. No, yeah, we we don't know anything except what's in this text. But do you do you have any tweaks to your predictions, Craig? Not really. I mean, okay. because I had because the Elmis is obviously not coming back to give him a reset button because we already had the reset button book. It didn't it didn't mm-hmm. go well, and it didn't go well. You know, it kind of went well, but yeah. <laughs> and I still think one of them's probably going to die. I do not think I have any updates to my end game based on this book. So yeah, I feel like other than I also had a lot of feelings oh. at the end of the book. It's just like really nicely written yeah. and so sad. And just like, it's mm-hmm. very anamorphs the whole like, you mattered, but we don't know if we're going to mm-hmm. win. Like, mm-hmm. it's all the pain, right? I did wonder, so you predicted something like this might happen, Gray. I was just curious, like, what's your take on if you are an avid fan of the series, like, knowing at this point that these are the stakes going into the oh, end game? yeah. 
That's a really good question. Like, you had predicted it. I did not predict this. So I read the Elmas <laughs> Chronicles. I was so devastated. Aww. Well, and I imagine that, I mean, because we don't know, right, who it's going to be, I imagine that there's a lot of, like, fear going into the end game or, like, mm. and you know, anticipation of which person it might be and why and, like, how are we going to get to that point? And so I can imagine reading the next books in the series with an eye to oh my god, which one of these beloved characters is going to die? So yeah, that it seems like this is, it's such an interesting choice to kind of forecast the end game like this and yeah. to make it so obvious that that's what's going to happen, but then not give any extra permission. Now that you say it, I wonder if the main effect is to soften the blow a little bit. Because hmm. then it's like, my experience reading the... Game of Thrones series when I was 13 is like a lot of characters protagonists get killed off and a lot of characters get fake killed off Mm. so every time there was like a cliffhanger death ending chapter I would just flip forward in the book until I saw (laughs) their name again so I could be confident that they they come back there that sounds like something I would do yeah so like (laughs) this at least then if this moment comes to pass you know that it's not like a fake out or some Mm. other kind like and you're you're willing to let it happen that's I a guess. good point. I don't know. Yeah, and also just emotionally preparing these like readers. Who, it also it's also yeah. like a marketing thing. It's like yeah. it's it's like the <laughs> Keep reading to the end. Who's the last Cylon, right? Like it's like that kind of No, but it's a good point that, you know, you I definitely want to read the next seven books to figure out who what's gonna happen next. Yeah, and I wonder that this is probably not the case, but I wonder if they were a little worried. Like, what if Scholastic pushes back? Not that they push back against anything violent and horrific that's happened so far. But oh, you shoehorn this into the Chronicles book, and then you say, <laughs> like, "Oh, no, we already said no that one of them dies." <laughs> yeah, that's probably not. That's probably not why, but I think that would be an entertaining reason. So, where do we start with this one? Yeah, I didn't get into Aguela's like flirting with Tumin before he was ready, and they were like. They were going off to the dance by, and he's like, none of us are old enough to, like, I don't know, breed, mate, whatever. I don't. He uses, like, cool slang. I don't remember what it is. Yeah. is and he's like, maybe Aguela is. And... In this moment, he's like Bella from Twilight. He's like, <laughs> I can't believe this, like, very attractive person is flirting with me. Like, ugh. And I'm being so embarrassing. <laughs> right, being in this situation. It's like, come on, Tumen. This is every gamer's fantasy. <laughs> Pretty gamer girl. His fantasy. That's true. He's allowed to not have it be his fantasy, but he does end up marrying her. So, um, but no, he she's like flying in front of in front of him, and and he's like admiring her. He's like she has very pretty pods or whatever. <laughs> he's like, oh, she's she's spreading the moans for me. And he's like later, he's like, guys will warn you about this, but they don't tell you how long the effect lasts. <laughs> he's just like he's like falling apart. He's uh, he's not ready for this. Uh, this level. They're, of, just, they're uh, just talking to lack of a later. He's like, is she flirting with him? Is she? No, I don't smell the moans. <laughs> like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. He he he's very confused. It's 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 very relatable. Young kid <laughs> first. Like, is it a crush? We maybe it's gonna be. I don't know. They're Do we, Okay. Should we start with who Tuman is? Because yeah. I just want to say this is Gray. Like, I know that you may not have come around on him, but so his whole thing is like. He's really into games. He has this, he's kind of naive. He's like a a brilliant loser is part of his personality. And then like, he talks about how it's cool that this like awesome space mission is happening. And he's like, yeah, like 
I wish I could do that. And then he was like, yeah, but I haven't really done anything to earn it with my life. Yep. And then he has this line, I was wasting my life in game playing, free flying, and face face, which is like <laughs> interacting face to face instead of I across guess, the internet, yeah. but is maybe also making out. I'm not sure. <laughs> But it's just, like, so relatable. And he has all this teen angst about, like, oh, my God, I got chosen. So I'm going to spend, like, the next month studying, I guess, maybe. But first, <laughs> I need to tell my friends about it. I just feel yeah. like it's, like, again, you know, you have to, it's, he's the middle grade protagonist again. But mm-hmm. I feel like despite how alien and weird the Ketrins are, I relate so much to, like, Tumen as a young Ketrin in the beginning. Oh, yeah. We're it generates like, a lot of goodwill like for me. like, isn't even that much older than me, but he's accomplished all this stuff. All right, from here on in, I'm going to focus. I'm going to pick a discipline, yeah. stop being lazy, and really devote myself. But my friends are waiting for me, so I should go <laughs> hang out with them first. Tomorrow. Then I'll do, I'll do this later. Yeah. yeah, very relatable. And very, like like you were saying, Ted, like very successfully alien in terms of their, like, I don't know, their, their society, what they want. The thing that actually got to me the most, well, I loved the thing where they, they were constantly lifting and their wings were constantly moving. That was... Amazing. Even even if lifting is now a hilarious word because like <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I was thinking of, you know, catching a cab. They couldn't say hauling, I guess, so four <laughs> oh <laughs> <laughs> But the thing that like was weirdest was that they couldn't communicate like city to city. Yeah. Mm. That was so weird because like they had space engines, they had like stuff in just like in Z space. But they didn't even have like little shuttles that would go over between crystals. That was that's really surprising. I feel like that's a little bit implausible that they wouldn't have had some sort of shuttle system. Yeah, point. I liked the the way the world building worked on Ket. I thought was actually one of my favorite parts. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons I thought it was so interesting was that you see different kinds of adaptation, and that becomes a theme throughout the rest yeah. of the book. But so that there are these crystals floating in the atmosphere on which the Ketrans live. And actually reminded me of um, the fifth season by N.K. Jemison, that series, yes, which yes. also has like floating monoliths made of stone and different kinds of gems and stuff. Because of this book and book 41, I kind of wonder if N.K. Jemison read the animals. Yeah, it's uh, a great question. It's very broken earthy. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, but I read broken earthy. It's a very tenuous yeah. connection, also. I mean, you could also come up with this awesome idea on your own. Yeah. I'm, I'm not trying I'm, to say it's the whole broken applicant. And they, they serve sure very different purposes. Dear N.K. Jemison. Not as much as we're a fan of you. We love you so much. Please follow me on Twitter. Um, <laughs> no, no. She's like very different. They they have very different functions, but there is this kind of, you know, floating crystalline structures. But because they are essentially their own cities, one of them is adapting organically to the requirements of having this kind of crystalline structure that provides the Ketrans their, it seems like provides them their like nourishment, food and whatever. They rely on the crystals. And one of the cities is kind of organically to some extent adjusting the structure of the crystal itself to Mm -hmm. be to be easier to fly around. Yeah, they're putting airfoil on it. The airfoil. And then the other city where Tumen lives is instead has created these like Z-space engines and they want to attach the engines to the crystal and let the engines do all the work. And it was kind of this idea of like, there are different ways that you can adapt to your environment in order to survive and kind of thrive and to evolve into perhaps a more, you know, space going race or a race that can, kind of put more energy into experimentation and innovation than into just surviving. 
And I, I really liked that part of it. I thought it was a really interesting way to think about evolution and adaptation that was then completely destroyed by later parts of the book. But it was a really great start. Like, very cool. <laughs> Whoa. Well, no, but the thing that you just highlighted is like, the, for the, they figured it out. They figured out how to make aliens that are not a monoculture. Yeah. <laughs> if it requires somewhat implausible world building <laughs> to keep the crystals incommunicado. Yeah. They did it. And I'm so proud of them. Yeah. And yeah. I really, really love it. Yeah, and I love this theme that we get. It's very, very blatant of like how small changes affect society. And I feel like that's that's something that like I at least I feel like has been in the zeitgeist like, you know, in recent years of like, how is all of our technology affecting us? I mean, it's sort of always been around like that idea. But these things that make our lives easier, how are they also maybe hurting us in some ways or like taking us away from like the way of living that would be the most natural or like that we're most suited for because of evolution and all that. And like this idea that like Ketrans lift, it's what they do. They spend 90% of their time with their wings flapping to keep these crystals in the air. Yeah, it would be great if they didn't have to do that so much. But like, what would that result in and mm-hmm. Tuman who plays these games where you make one tiny change and then you see how it ripples throughout the, the whole civilization he's like what would this mean for like my real civilization if we have 50% of our time free or more mm-hmm. like what would happen like it's impossible to imagine the repercussions I mean you mm-hmm. get like lack of a being like no it's at any game you can like just figure out how the logic works and then like extrapolate but like no this stuff is like actually too complicated like mm-hmm. you can't anticipate it's so interesting how that's not really something that the main series addresses mm-hmm. in a couple of ways. So one is that this is, it's not just how the Ketrans adapt differently and what their technology changes mean for their society, but also the presence of like an external culture coming in and the misunderstandings that might crop up, mm-hmm. right? Like that's all super interesting thematic territory. But when it comes to human civilization, learning about the existence of aliens that like never comes up. No one ever talks. No, the animals never think about what will Z space mean for the future of earth civilization? Mm-hmm. Because the existential struggle yeah. to survive is like so important, yeah, right? What will morphing technology point. mean? Right. And similarly, like the, we got a little bit of the escort versus the Yerks sort of like seeding this idea of like, what little changes can you make? Mm-hmm. You know, like maybe the Yerks can be symbiotes one day or whatever. Mm-hmm. But again, the way that the Animorphs and like the Andalites all think about the Yerks, it's like, Yerks are Yerks, they're parasites, you can't change them, you gotta kill them. Yeah. Right? It's like a very non, it's very different from the way those themes are handled in this book. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating the way human society is, is viewed in the main series as like almost unalterable. Like, yeah. either it will be destroyed by the Yerks or it will be preserved. Mm-hmm. And, like, this idea that it might turn into something completely different with the incorporation of alien technology is really yeah. not mentioned. Well, it kind of tracks with, like, what some of the Animorphs want. Like, especially Marco and Jake, I guess, is, like, the return to normalcy. Yeah, right? So yeah, if yeah. they were thinking about how, like, oh, my dad's job might be different if... <laughs> you know, we have alien technology, like, that also is going to be, like, like, because change is bad. They want to go back. They want it to be yes. normal. They're not really thinking about the future much. It's just yeah. in, in, yeah. Except in the general well, return to what it was. Right, Joyce. And it might be too painful because, like, especially at this point in the series, Jake is like, what future? Yeah. <laughs> it feels like a very middle grade thing to me. Like, I feel like when you're, like, 13 or whatever, you're like, yeah, life was different in the past. 
but now we're in the present and the present will stay the same forever. Like that, mm, I feel yeah. like that's a very kid like way to think because you haven't lived long enough like been aware enough for long enough to like have seen changes. Hmm. So you don't really get a sense of like, oh, right, history is still happening. It's sort of the end of history 90s thing also. Like there, there isn't this idea that like, oh, yeah, our society could turn into something completely different, not because aliens destroy it, but just because of the incorporation of this thing. Yeah. yeah. And we see that too with the way that the Elemist with the Pemelites, for example, mm. that by providing kind of these little pushes towards technological advancement, the Elemist is essentially creating a new species. I mean, the Pemelites, it's much more like he actually creates them from scratch. Yeah, kind yeah. of. <laughs> but with the other, you know, as he's interfering, he's giving these little pushes that allow them to advance more quickly in the way that he wants in all of these different species. And I think that's like a really interesting thing, like an interesting theme throughout the book. So I'd like to take us on a brief Femlites detour to address something that came up many podcasts ago in episode 10, when we first learned about the story of the Uh Femlites. So Guest host Liz talked about how one of the great things about dogs is that they co-evolved with humans mm-hmm. and can thus be one of the greatest inventions that he, of, of humanity. Mm-hmm. And that the story mm-hmm. of the Pemelites kind of retcons that in a way that's not great. And we talked about like, well, where did dogs come from in terms of the Pemelite origin story? Well, we have a definitive answer now. The Elmist invented dogs. <laughs> we don't know why. We don't know how. I'm not sure what about his experience as all of the people of the father or on cat led him to imagine dogs. But, Do you um, think he saw dogs coming? I don't think he invented dogs. Well, he invented the Pemelites who invented dogs. He invented the Pemelites who invented dogs. He invented the the precursors to dogs. But we were wondering, where do dogs come from in the Anorphed universe? And we have a definitive answer. Mm -hmm. Two men... By proxy invents dogs. I don't know if people want to speculate more on that, but I did want to address it. So, as you guys know, I have read the Animorphs books once and Mm -hmm. like a half each, right, for this podcast. But I do not have the depth of understanding. I did not remember the Pemelites having this... Like spread life through the galaxy on behalf of your creator as their mission. It was like peaceful society on a planet. We have our dogs. We're living in these like lovely lives. Isn't that nice? And then Cryot comes and destroys us. And this book felt like it was retconning that a little bit that the Elemist had gone in, created a new species, and given them a mission to go and spread life throughout the galaxy on his behalf. And I didn't remember that being a thing. We are only presented uh, presented this by the Chi, who I don't know what they think about their creators. Maybe that maybe the Chi are just super nostalgic for the good times between uh, life missions. Yeah, it feels plausible to me that the Chi would like change the story a little because they said that like yeah the Pemelites were just so adapted that they weren't violent anymore. Yeah, they had they had evolved beyond the need for violence, which doesn't seem to be true. It seems like they were initially created to be a nonviolent, but the Chi might not have known that or like, yeah. There might have been stories, like the Pemelites might not have been aware. That's fascinating. One created species venerating their, like, organic forefathers, who were also created, created, like, intelligently created species. Eric is the eldest grandson. (laughs) Right. She chronicles. Here we come. (laughs) Well, (laughs) chronicles. And also, as you're saying that, it does occur to me that 
the chi may only have been on the Pamelite planet and therefore not part of the distributing of life throughout yeah. the galaxy. So like maybe they their memories of like life on our originating planet where we were all peaceful do not take into account the like generation ships that are out spreading but life. You know what's weird is that like the howlers show up, destroy all the Pemelites. If the Pemelites were mostly about like spread life, spread life everywhere, I guess it wasn't their own life, like they were spreading other species. But you'd think they would have been pretty spread out. How yeah. did the Howlers destroy all of them? Well, was yeah. it like the annual Pemelite convention or something? Did they have, did they have a, a, re- a recall signal? We're in trouble, come help us. Yeah. Well, We're in trouble, come back so we can all be destroyed at once. Yeah. No, I think it is, it is a weird inconsistency. And I understand why it would be frustrating, Gray. But I, I would parse it either like, okay, so maybe Pemelites, they give up on their mission at some point and they do become more consolidated. Or... The Pemelites that we know from the Chi are actually just one faction. Mm. And so the tragedy of losing the Pemelites is actually kind of overblown. The, <laughs> there are other Pemelites in far, 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 far off reaches of the universe. But it's just these howlers destroyed you know, these I like Pemelites. That. I think there are still Pemelites. Or I'm a Pemelite truther. <laughs> or you could be a howler truther, which is that Cryak created the howlers to hunt down and kill all Pemelites at once. Mm. And it was like mm. a universal Pemelite genocide. And then genocide. it's sort of the, the chi thing is true. Their, ga- their game was to have it have be simultaneous. I don't know. Right. Since, you know, there's right. the thing where they mm. also think oh, they're yeah. playing a game. And games, yeah, uh, games is a way of like regarding an extremely altered version of the world is such a such an element here. Hmm. I have completely forgotten about the Howlers as gaminess. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's so good. Yeah, really need to reread Ender's Game now. I mean, a lot of Ender's Game here. That's yeah. a good yes, yeah, good thing to point out. There's also. So I was talking to my partner about this book, and he plays this game called Civilizations that is set on Earth and has all these civilizations fighting against one another. But there's also a spin-off of this game that he plays that's called uh, Civ in Space. I don't know. That's not what it's called. Whatever. <laughs> but in Civ in Space, there are three different species that are fighting against one another. There's like the simple farmers who just want to go back to their home world and like be the way that they were forever. There's a bio race that has like used biology to evolve in different ways. And then there's a more mechanical race. It's kind of like the Borg, like they've used all of these different advanced technological advancements in order to become better. And these three races are in conflict, which reminded me of this whole book was very much like that. But mm-hmm. particularly, there is a conflict that the Elemist and Cryak get into between three. Uh, there are these three warring planets that they're trying to dictate who's going to survive. And those three planets were described as exactly like Alien Civ. And I was like, look, it's Civ in space, but with the Elemist and Cryak with the asteroids instead of just these people <laughs> battling each other. Um, and I thought that that was like a cool. Uh, I hope that the people who made, I really should know the name of this game. I don't know, Civ in space. Uh, read the Animorphs and were like, oh, we can do something with this. So did this this game did come out after... Yeah, definitely. Because there were several things where I was like, this is a reference to a thing that hasn't happened yet. Like the entire mm. middle section of the book being called Second Life. <laughs> so, and then he spends his whole time in like a like pseudo, like a fake version. Yeah, of Second Life was... creepy fake version. Hilarious. Do we want to get into the the game theme? Yeah, let's talk about the games. Let's do it. I know early on uh, when when Tumen is 
wrestling with a with a crystal spire and he's trying to and he and he kills the alien and then he has to go in and fight his claustrophobia to use the alien ship he has to he's a content he has to contextualize everything in the, in like this is a game this is a game this is what mm-hmm. i do to win he can't handle it as itself it, he can't handle just having lost his whole family and whole city mm-hmm. so yeah. it's a game yeah it's so fat like i i think i said this at the beginning but like the fact that he is a gamer who's who has this like built-in idea that he wants to meddle benevolently and minimalistically it's like built into his personality and then like testing that assumption as he gets more and more and more power mm-hmm. is so fascinating because like the theme of right you have to think like a gamer to win mm-hmm. but like winning at what cost and like how can you change the rules of the game mm-hmm. It's all very thematically intertwined. And, like, what is a game? Like, at the beginning, the game, it being a game means that it's not real. Like, the people that they're, like, the civilizations that they're meddling with don't really exist. They're just and, code. And as Lakava points out, it's software. So if you know all the rules, what's the point in playing? Mm, <laughs> uh, not and then, of course, the stakes are the software is the universe by, by the end mm, when he's playing right. with Cryag. Yeah, so what are the elements that make it still be a game when it's real people on the line? Is it that they're, I mean, it seems like the Elemist is taking them as real people. Cryax sort of isn't, like, doesn't care. But, like, what makes it still fall under this, like, why, why do they still talk about it as a game? So the thing that I find super interesting about the game idea is, like, game in the sense of, as we know it, like, geopolitics and like the study of game theory in political science and how if you think about conflict as a game what leads to the best strategies right and so if you simplify things down to a game like the prisoner's dilemma where you have two people as partners who can choose to either trust or betray each other and if you get betrayed by your partner and you were trusting you lose the most and they gain a lot. If you cooperate, you both gain a little bit. And if you both betray each other, you both lose entirely. The way that that game works is there's an incentive to betray as long as you know the other person trusts you. And you get into this situation of, you know, overthinking, like, if you think the other person's going to do this, then you should do that. But then maybe you should change your strategy. (laughs) And you can extrapolate from that to, okay, well, if you're trying to win, you know, sometimes you have to betray the other person. One of the main twists on the prisoner's dilemma that you could consider, though, is what you do if the game is going to, if you know the game is going to be repeated over and over and over again. Because trust in one interaction isn't worth that much. But trust in a repeated Prisoner's Dilemma style game means that if the other person can see your previous game playing ability and knows that you always betray, then you're never going to get the rewards of betrayal because people playing against you are going to say, there's no reason for me to trust this person. But if in an iterated Prisoner's Dilemma game, you're willing to cooperate sometimes, you can demonstrate collectively that if, you, if someone wants to play games with you, then they have a reason to trust you and you can create this like virtuous cycle of cooperation and trust over and over again, right? And so that prisoner's dilemma idea and whether a game can be played over and over again is like, I see really baked into this because the way that the escalation of power works is if the game, if the game is being played between equals, right, you can establish rules and you can establish norms around gameplay that make sense if one person has the power to completely destroy the other person 
then the game is effectively only being played once, mm-hmm. and there's no incentive to hold back. And the Elmist keeps kind of like pivoting between these two strategies as he becomes more and more godlike. One thing that's weird, sorry, this is a little bit deviating from the game conversation. The Elemist told the story to the Animorphs at one point, like, we were in conflict, but too many worlds were being destroyed, so I didn't like that. But he was, like, Kryak was damaged in some essential way, and he wasn't willing to keep fighting in that scale because it would hurt him too much. Which isn't really how this goes. Like, that's not really... No, the story from 26 is pretty different in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, maybe they just discarded it. I mean, the Elemis could be an unreliable narrator about his own. Not in this. Maybe he is in this, too. I mean, he is also telling telling it to one person who's dying, and he wants to tell it as, like, a narrative, I think. So, I don't know. There could mm-hmm. be... I don't know. That's my thing with, like, the Andalites being a thing, even if they are cave Andalites, 65 million years ago. That's a, mm-hmm. that's a long time. That's <laughs> a really long time. I mean, I think that's... One of the things about this book is that the scale of it is really... It's a little weird. Maybe not weird, but hard to follow because certainly you get the Katrins who are seem to be quite long lived but the scale of the first first life is 100 years maybe him as a child and then there's 60 years on the spaceship and you know it's a it's a compressed kind of timeline and then he's with the father for a long time but like hundreds of years mm-hmm. and then the the third life and end game is like millions of years and that mm-hmm. just seemed like a really big logarithmic leap in in time mm-hmm. scales that was hard to then it was hard for me to kind of accommodate that into my thinking about how the elemist was like doing this because it just he's got a lot of time to work with so these small <laughs> nudges in, in evolution mean that he can make these big changes but it's because 65 million years have passed it just it was a little weird i don't know so time is also weird for the elemist he has this thing when he goes through the black hole and he's like i'm outside of time and i can see all the lines and like clearly his relationship with time is not you know a normal mortal one but also he tells this dying person he's like i don't know how it's gonna turn out like the battle isn't over yet. And also it seems like in this game with Cryak, like they're they seem to be playing linearly. So like is time linear for him? We don't actually one thing that is completely absent from this book is the time matrix, mm-hmm. which the Elemist apparently created at some point for some reason that we have no idea, you know why. I don't know. Tobias laid it as an egg. We still, we can still have whatever headcanon we want about it because it doesn't come up here. But like, there is this, it seems to be this sort of sidestepping of the complexity of time. Like if he's actually outside of time, I mean, he could just be lying to the dying human and be like, I don't know yet. It's not over. But like, he should know. He should be able to see everything. Maybe when he's having that conversation. He seems so sympathetic to this person that he, you think he would say, it's, it'll be okay. It may not be okay for you, but it will be okay. Well, in terms of the way the book ends, both Elmist and Kryak have ascended to be godlike figures that have some control over space-time. And they say, we will play one final game for the stakes of the universe. Will the universe be a place where life can flourish, or will it be a place that gets annihilated forever? I guess. I, or like Whatever Kryak an wants. empty place built to Kryak's specification, or, or whatever mm-hmm. the stakes are. So it kind of makes sense to me that they're in this place of mutually assured destruction by the end of the book, so that even if one of them has 
timey-wimey powers that can see the future, the other one also has those powers. So mm-hmm. there must be some kind of tug of war between them mm-hmm. where, so like the Elmist saying, I don't know how things will turn out is like, I don't know whether the 50% of good timelines that I see will happen mm-hmm. or the 50% mm-hmm. of bad timelines I see will happen yeah. because yeah. by the rules we've established, there's this like knife's edge balance of power and mm-hmm. neither of us has quite figured out if we've played the winning move yet. Yeah. I really want to know if this war with the Yurks, like probably like in in terms of like, if you take the, the story as given, like it doesn't really make sense for this to be the final battle. Like why would it be? But because the, you know, Animorphs is the series we're reading, I kind of hope that this War of the Yurks is like the ultimate battle. Yeah. Then they can defeat Kryak. I don't remember if any of this happens, but. So that, that, that just made me think, I wonder if there's a conflict in thinking about this between the idea of, okay, they can control the whole universe. The the universal mermaids. (laughs) Yes. Well, they do control the universal mermaids. universe. Oh, God. (laughs) They can control the whole universe and see all of space-time. And in our reality, uh, a lot of people think that the laws of physics are deterministic and the universe is on a fixed course or whatever. It is pretty clear that that idea doesn't really apply in this in this mm-hmm. universe. And so the idea of the Elemist and Crack being able to play a game against each other means that the future can't be totally predicted, right? Because mm-hmm. then obviously there would be one final answer. And so like I was thinking a little bit like, if you watch professional chess players, computers are good enough to follow along and track what is the like probability that a player will win based on the moves they've mm. made. And so you can kind of see it starts out 50-50 and it goes up and down and sometimes someone will make a really bad move. And it's like, okay, this person's going to lose 90% sure. But then the other player can still make a really bad move that mm-hmm. take, moves the probability the other direction mm-hmm. or, or something, right? So there's this unknown decision-making element that the computer can't take into the prediction. So the Elmist and Cryak don't have insight into each other's ability to make decisions, mm-hmm. right? So so this takes me back to this idea that there's like a some kind of dualism in the Animorphs universe where the Cryak and Elmist have like thinking souls that are beyond Z-space and beyond whatever this like, I don't know, string theory. Maybe we can call it Y-space because <laughs> why does it exist? Because um, and no other where reason. you can hover and see all the lines of space-time? Yeah, space? yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I think that might be Y-space. But so there is this other level that the Elmist and Cryak are at where they can't predict each other. And another game thing that comes back is that a worthy opponent is someone who exists outside the software, right? Mm-hmm. Software is rules, but your opponent mm. brings this, like, essential unknown factor. So the mm-hmm. father needs two men yes. as as an antagonist, the same way yeah. that Cryak needs the Elemist as an antagonist. Yeah. And so even despite all the power of the universe at their hands, they cannot create a generated intelligence. They can't create a new life force that can achieve what we think of as the singularity. Like they can't create an intelligence that becomes smarter and smarter that can rival their own. There is no emerging intelligence. The mm-hmm. idea of an intelligent opponent is something else. It comes from somewhere beyond that they don't have access to. There are like five things I want to respond to. I was to. just about to say. <laughs> so Let's get into it. So 
there's such a strong theme of free will in this book. And there, at some point, Tuman says when he's on Father's World and there are these sort of facsimiles of other people, he's like, they aren't really independent. Like, what defines Ketrans or like any sentient being is free will and they didn't have it. And so they aren't separate minds, even though he has access to all their neurons and like, you know, can push the buttons or whatever. It's a it's a rebuttal to what Lakava says at the beginning when he says, um, oh, you, you know, this game is dumb. You like, you just figure out the rules of the software. And it's sort of this idea that like on a universe scale, you cannot do that. And the, the book seems very firm on that. You could probably still make an argument that like, okay, but someone who has access to both the Elemis and Cryax thinking, like maybe they're, maybe it's all deterministic. It's just at a higher level that like they don't have access to. But I mean, the book definitely isn't saying that. And I think the book actually says like mechanically they cannot create life or mechanically they cannot create independent minds, but they can create life. Like the Elemis creates the Pemelites and the Pemelites presumably, I mean, we're not told otherwise, like we have to assume, have independent thought, like they are other beings in the way that like, the other minds incorporated into the Elemists are not, they aren't like rivaling the Elemist in intelligence, like it's not like an equal opponent would take a really long time to grow from organic matter, but they can build minds organically, just not mechanically. Right, but I guess what I think that is true. But I think whatever makes it life comes from something they don't control. Well, I think the Pemelites is a good um, insight into this because what he says was he grew a wholly new species invented in my body slash ship, uh, created of bits and pieces of DNA. I accented their intelligence. I quashed their aggressiveness. I called them Pemelites and I gave them laws as their creator. But that read to me as I started with nothing but soup and then I stuck a bunch of DNA together and created intelligent life. Which is, I think, very different from his other interfering tendencies mm-hmm. where he's, mm-hmm. you know, he goes to a planet and he kills the off the dinosaurs and lets the rodents survive, you know, like. Oh, no, that was, that was Tobias. Oh, that right. Was Tobias. <laughs> he actually, the Elvis did not do that. That's right. Good point. Yeah. But, you know, that kind of thing where he kind <laughs> yes. of pushes yes. one species yep. in a different way or changes their orbit so that they have a different kind of food supply or whatever it is. I want to talk about one of my favorite, there's so, I, I just really love a lot of the passages in this book. And one of my favorites is the bit where the Elemist creates an Andalite avatar and sends it down. And at, at the moment before the Andalite goes down to Andalusia or whatever the <laughs> planet is called. It's Andalusia. Andalusia. That's where you learn about Kermel's um, kiss. The Andalusians. <laughs> but his avatar stares back at his weird ship slash body, and they have this moment of like where he sees himself in both directions. It's just like it's so cool, right? But completely unexplored is whether the Elmist could create a second Elmist. He never wants it or considers it. And I guess my unquestioning assumption was that he could not do that. Mm. That he couldn't create something like himself. He could only create things that are further down on the spectrum of intelligence, which is where my my earlier rant was coming from. But maybe mm-hmm. maybe he does have that power and he doesn't he, he never doesn't thinks about it. it and doesn't want to. Because if he had that option and he didn't take it, that that's an interesting character choice. Yeah, and I think what I found confusing, I guess, let's call it confusing about this book was what what we're saying here is that there is an ability for an organic life form on any planet to eventually, through a a series of very improbable events, but through events that could potentially happen, become a being outside of space-time entirely. 
there's still hope for you if you want that. Right. Which obviously is now my new goal. (laughs) I've got a 65 million year plan that involves me becoming one with a black hole and, you know, a life force planet size thing. But that's a that's a big claim. Like, it's it's very weird to me. And what's even weirder is that it seems to have happened twice. Like, the improbability of the Elemist becoming the Elemist, as we know and love him, sure, outside of space-time. Okay, well, we've seen him, like, essentially failing upward Mm. elaborately (laughs) and becoming the Elemist. What we don't see is how Cryak got to be Cryak. Mm, And I I actually found that really disappointing because at the beginning, a thing that I thought was going to happen, again, I'm very bad at predictions, but he has, there's another- completely not true. (laughs) There's another Katrin that he is conflicting with, who's his like second in command. And they both have very distinct approaches to what their future should be as a Mm -hmm. civilization. And Honestly, I think that's a more interesting origin story for the Elemist Cryak. I kept, I said, I said in my summary, yeah. I kept expecting Cryak to show up. I was wondering, like, which of these characters is going to be Cryak? Exactly. Because these books are always about conservation of characters. And then, but this book wasn't. It wasn't. And then somehow it's just like, surprise, another being. And it's like, but how and why? And we're not going to get the Cryak Chronicles. And if the part of the point Cryak. of this is like the value of an adversary that can surprise you. Yeah. Having this other being that has itself somehow gotten outside of space time, it's just it was a it was a weird choice and I didn't really get it. Well, okay, so Cryak going outside of space time, I feel like the Elemist makes like a a good case for that, because he's like me going through this black hole and like ascending or whatever, the odds are like a billion to one. But once like but it having a second time is very likely because Cryak is just hugely powerful. We don't know how we got yeah. to that point. When you find the exploit but... in the game that lets right. you like bounce off of a wall code. and yeah. jump through the ceiling and get to the end of the level in five seconds, you just look that shit up on YouTube and you, everyone can do it. Yeah, so I think Cryak ascending to his final state is plausible given what the Elemist did. He saw what happened and so he yeah, said, yeah, yeah. okay, if I distribute myself across real space and Z space and then do this yeah, part, yeah, yeah. another part, then... Risky, but he'd rather die than not play the game, so... <laughs> Right, but how did he get to the level where he could We don't do know. That? Yeah, right, that's the part. It's it's less the space time. Well, okay, the reason we can't have the Cryak Chronicles is that obviously Grey is going to become Cryak and that hasn't happened yet. So she's going to become Cryak and go back in time. But because like that part hasn't happened yet, we can't get the story yet. You're gonna have to have some right. you're gonna have to have a, a more powerful force than either the Elemist or yourself kick you out of your universe. So you can be in the, in this universe. Well, what I really need to be able to do is to download hundreds of thousands of other people into my human-sized brain somehow, and then find a way to connect to a computer to download those things, but have that computer still be part of me so that all of it's just kind of all at once I can access all of that so shit. you have a game plan. Yeah. Ha ha. What? That's not how organic things work. So yeah, but it is, this is like, it's a, it's a very middle grade choice, right? Mm-hmm. Cryak is boring evil, right? Yeah. It's just a Sauron just planet. I, because Why? of my understanding of psychology, there must be some trauma in Cryak's <laughs> past that causes Cryak to believe that it needs to dominate and destroy. And and the Elemist is like, he's also a little bit of a benevolent meddler by nature, right? Mm-hmm. So 
there must be something in Cryak's origin story that leads Cryak to want to keep making these choices, to think that Cryak needs to win. And and the all we get in the book is that Cryak is destructive and evil. And bored. And bored. And <laughs> that's that's like a yeah. plausible and familiar fictional type, but like Apple Grant is not interested in yeah. exploring the nature of evil in this way. Yeah. Um, and I- even the backstories we get of the other villains, other than maybe Edris, not super interested in... I guess Taylor has an interesting backstory, but mm. Esplin doesn't. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, I want to push back a little bit against the idea that, like, there has to be trauma in Cryak's past that means that he is destructive. Because, like, I mean, understanding of psychology is, like, human minds, right? Like, Cryak could just be fundamentally different in some way. And that's interesting in theory. I don't think that it's applied interestingly in that we just don't really find out anything about Cryak's mind. But I I do think that, like, making Cryak not just a human-like mind that has experienced trauma and now wants to destroy, like, that that has the potential to be a more interesting mm. choice, even well, though it's not taken in that direction. I want to I wanna argue. Do you okay. want to say more of your point well, first? Well, I think that underlying it is the idea that, like, there's something fundamentally benevolent about life, which, like, you could certainly argue, but... This idea that like there has something has to have damaged this alien being in order to make it pro-destruction because it's not possible for life to just be pro-destruction. Yeah, I, I take your point, but I think this book is trying to do the work of why is there a cosmic struggle between good and evil where good and evil are represented by people with personalities? <laughs> um, and I think that it really falls down on the evil side of that. Yes, because you could, if you think about this as science fiction, first and foremost, then there's no reason why the Elemist couldn't ascend to godhood, destroy Cryak, and then benevolently rule the galaxy, right? Mm. Like, there's no reason why the universe couldn't be set up to have one intelligent mind controlling everything. Yeah, and, why didn't he just destroy Cryak after going through that black hole? Right, right. So, like, <laughs> so, but but the, the Animorphs is not interested in being part of a universe where there is one benevolent god who will make sure things turn out okay. The mm-hmm, Animorphs is, mm-hmm. is committed to the idea that maybe life and entropy are opposing forces, mm-hmm. right? And that it's a constant struggle for them to exist. And they've made the choice to kind of like personify them. But I think that if you make that choice, then you have a narrative responsibility to make them interesting as people. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, mm-hmm. why not make it the Elemist is there pulling the strings, but fundamentally the universe is about entropy and so mm. the the elemist is fighting against nature itself to keep life spinning as long as it can but inevitably there will be a heat death and we will all die right like you could have done that but for some reason they wanted this antagonist instead well and i think for me that was one of the main themes of this book was the value of an adversary because yeah. that comes up over and over and every everything from Tuman's original like having this one dude that he's like kind of playing this game with to then having a second in command that they're dis- discussing what the Ketchins are going to do to fighting against the father to fighting against Cryak. I mean, each of them is like he's leveling up against who the boss is, but like it's all about how valuable it is to have an enemy that you respect or that you're kind of at a level with in order to make life interesting to have this game and it's a it was a really interesting choice in part because it meant that all of these major conflicts are described as a game you need an opponent on the other side of the chessboard and there i have some thoughts about that but i do think it's interesting that yeah. the idea that you need an adversary is like 
there is this that stretch like after he le- after he leaves uh, father's world and is tooling around in the universe for like however long and then when he sees Cryak and and is first playing the horrible games he's glad to have someone else mm-hmm. he's like he feels like he needs Cryak. yeah it's like being it's, god is lonely yeah i i'm skeptical of that i mean you see it very clearly with the two planets where the elmist first tries to impose peace and turns out one of them destroyed the other, and then for lack of an adversary, regressed technologically, which I didn't buy. I was like, okay, maybe they have technology for other reasons than defeating this other planet. Like that seemed really implausible to but me. But to me, that's the and- way. That's how Cryak thinks. That's not. I don't think that's true. I think uh, that's how Cryak. Thinks. Okay, maybe maybe Cryak was being unreliable in his report of that, but. It did seem, I mean, the book as a whole is really pro having an adversary. So I want to know how that applies to the Animorphs as a series as a whole, because certainly the Animorphs have become much more than they would have if they hadn't had the Yerks to fight against. But it's also like destroying them. And like, I don't think that the books are trying to say like, humanity's better because the Yerks are trying to take us over. Like that doesn't, I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's applicable there. No, this is so interesting. I didn't think about this till just now, but I'm pretty sure this is, this is actually getting at uh, something in Apple Grant that is fundamentally true about how they see the world. And this is, I think the idea that like humans aren't ready for the next war Mm. and coming from a, I think they both came from like military families, but seeing like the value of preparedness and this this need to be strong enough for the unknown enemy and how if you aren't worried about if you aren't worried about that adversary out there you will be complacent and that will lead to your destruction Mm -hmm. and i I feel like that it's 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 like actually a very like cold war mindset it's like you just have to be ready and that that is a good that you are giving to as like a, a soldier or a battle leader to the rest of society by being ready for that conflict that might I mean, fly out of the sky at any moment. They did grow up in the Cold War. Yeah, yeah. So huh. that's not impossible. Hmm. Cold War and military families would be an intense combination. And I, I, yeah, that's just, I mean, political rhetoric is full of adversaries for a lot of different reasons. But mm. but yeah. one of them is definitely this like the pro-peace argument of being ready to fight. Mm. Yeah. And what's interesting, so we I've made this comparison before, but there were bits of this that remind me of war games which is the mm. there's a computer who's in charge of the nuclear uh, annihilation of the world and they the, this kid comes in and plays tic-tac-toe with it and the computer says the only way to win is not to play. And I think it's interesting that like we actually never get that step in these books. There there mm. is never a point where Crack and the Elemis say we're too evenly matched we cannot fight each other anymore because we're actually there's no point to this because mm-hmm. There's no way for either of us to beat the other person. No, Elemis tries. Yeah, uh, they get to that point. And, and Crack is like, nah, I'm just going to blow us die. both up. I would rather die. Right, right, So, like... The value in the game itself, yeah, but only from the evil exactly, character. Exactly, yeah. That. It's just kind of a weird theme. I don't know. The other thing about that that I was a little bit... Okay, I, I was a little uncomfortable with the idea that this was so often described as a game. I mean, from the beginning, right, he's a gamer, he's playing this thing. The beginning of the, the first life is like deliberately, deliberately obscure about whether the game he's playing is real or not, because we know it's the Elemis. So we're like, oh, he's pitting these two civilizations against each other. What a jerk. And then it turns out, oh, no, it's just a simulation, right? I was like, how dare he? And then they're like, it's a game. And I was like, oh, I, I got, tr- you tricked me. You got me, <laughs> Apple Grant. But then that continues, right? Like, all the games he's playing with father, but then even with Cryak, it's 
over and over and over, this is the game that we're playing. And like, buddies, it's not, it's not a game. And do you know how I can tell it's not a game? You're literally destroying galaxies. Like, this is, it's, I think part of the reason that I had such an issue with this, because I was coming in with it not liking the Alamist, and I, nothing changed my mind. But part of it was that this is an incredibly self-absorbed narrative. It is so much about him and his, like, he's so sad because his friends all died. And like, listen, I get it. That is a traumatic moment. And I feel very bad for you. You have a lot of pain. But um, that doesn't actually excuse you, like, destroying full civilizations because you have to be Cryak. Like, there's, that's not a thing. Like, well, I was, I, I felt bad because I destroyed this planet in the way. But don't worry, as soon as I'm done with this game, I'll come back and fix it. Like, it's not a game when you're killing billions of people. I kind of but, felt like the narrative was calling him out on that a little bit. Like, that felt self-aware to me. Yeah. He was like, I just, I felt like I needed to destroy Cryak at all costs. And I was telling myself I would come back. But, like, clearly I wasn't. No, I think the narrative justifies, or the narrative addresses him worrying about Cryak. But I don't think it, I don't think he ever learns a lesson about meddling. Which I think is what Gray was getting at. Hmm. Yeah, he like starts to learn one when it's like, oh, these two planets actually one's destroyed and one has like regressed to yeah, yeah, level of life exactly. But then it turns out like Cryak has mostly been causing this kind of thing to happen, right? And at one point he says something like, "I was frightened at last into true humility," but then like, no, he wasn't at all. He's still doing it. No, but that's interesting. It's also then. And I don't, I don't know how much this story actually deals with this issue, but the value of an adversary as justifying bad behavior, mm. right? That he describes that one bit where there's the graph where as they fight, the amount of life overall in the universe is rapidly approaching zero, but the Elemist's likelihood of beating Cryak once and for all is rapidly approaching one. And he's like, boy, I, I hope I win. win before we destroy the universe. <laughs> But that that graph justifies his behavior, right? So the moral position I hear you advocating for, Gray, is that in the face of Cryak, you should let everybody die if you have the ability to try and stop him. <laughs> okay, that wasn't quite what I was going for, but I'll, you know, fine. No, so I think the part that jumped out to me is that the Elemist is like, gosh, I don't want to play the game anymore. And he runs away. And he hasn't come up with his idea of like, I'll see life to beat Cryak yet. And on the Andalite homeworld, he's like doing the classic chronicle staple of interspecies mm, romance. Yep. Making kids oh, where you're not, yeah, yep, you're not yep, part of yep. the original species. But they, they just he then is like, oh man, you know what? I can cure all their diseases. And then he's like, oh gosh, I've got all this power and I'm not using it. I can't just hide out here in the backwoods part of the galaxy. I got to go run off and save everywhere from Cryak. And that's exactly what he does to uh, Elfangor yeah. in the Andalite Chronicles. Mm-hmm. He says, dude, I've got I've got a better mission for you. Get out of Earth. Also, I secretly stole Tobias. <laughs> that part doesn't get addressed. But so if the if the duty he has as a super powerful being to try and stop Cryak is wrong, the book doesn't address that. And I think the Animorphs a lot come back to this idea of we've got the morphing powers, so we have to fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the theme that like has come up in the series before of like, if you have the ability to oppose evil, because in these books, like, it's very clear that one side of the war is evil, which is right. narratively convenient, then you have to do it like you, you have this duty to fight. But that is why Cryak, I think, to Gray's early point is lazy, because like the Yurks are evil, but in an interesting way, They're whereas evil. Cryak is evil in a super boring way. 
Mm-hmm. Right. The Yerks are fighting for something that they want, even if we can argue that it's wrong for them to fight for it. Yeah. Like, and we also to want believe it. that being a parasite is fundamentally wrong. But what we're, then we're, what we're asking is for the Yerks to just roll over and die. Ch- or change themselves entirely somehow. Like, right, which they may not have the power to do. Yeah, Meadows. Yeah. 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 It, it's, it's interesting that the book doesn't say at the end whether the Alamist strategy is vindicated. Like, it... It leaves it open because we don't know if the Animorphs will win their battle. We don't know if the Alamist will win his ultimate battle against Cryak. He has been a brilliant loser, you know, forever. Will he Will he finally win or will Cryak win? We don't know. Um, I just on the brilliant loser thing, I did want there to be a an Animorphs moment there because lack of us comment that what we really need on board is a brilliant loser. And I was like, oh my God, I want Marco and Rachel here because either Marco is going to be like, Perfect. Or Rachel's going to be like, Marco, they could use you. Like, I really <laughs> wanted that that perfect setup. It is a drawback to all the Chronicles books that we don't get the, like, band of six banter. Mm-hmm. That yeah. is just one of the best parts of the Animorphs books. So in true. My opinion. I thought it was really interesting that when he's fighting Father, he has this line where he's like, only a loser truly sees. And mm-hmm. he's, like, channeling his loserness. Mm-hmm. into a set of victories against father. Mm-hmm. It made me think about how it's it's not quite the same term of loser, but like people who are excluded or oppressed in society probably have a better idea of how society works. Like if you're, mm-hmm. if it's like this almost survivor bias or privilege bias. Like if you, if you think your life is going really well, you'll, you might ascribe that to, you being good at stuff instead mm-hmm. of society mm-hmm. enabling you or you getting lucky, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so you this idea that he's been he's been knocked down so many times, he has more experience than Father, who is, it turns out, a brainless sponge who just absorbs other people, but... Yes, um, still. Yeah, I. it also made me think of a thing where, like, if you're having trouble being organized, you don't ask an organized person for help. You ask a disorganized person who's managed to be organized. Like, you know, you don't ask someone... To whom stuff comes naturally. That's a really good point. Or yeah. like the idea that like the best way to like figure out how to win a game is to just lose spectacularly a bunch of times and like test different ways to like take things to their limits and then figure out like the best strategies. I'm going to take that away back to my partner and be like, this is why I'm so bad at this one game that we keep playing and I keep losing at. It's because I'm testing all the different ways you can lose and someday I'm going to win spectacularly. <laughs> um, no, but I we've talked about how you play games before, Greg. Yes. Oh, yeah. I think the reason you don't win is because you're not motivated. It's not because you're not worthy, right? One of the lines that jumped out about gameplay is, it's not the good and worthy who prosper. It's just the motivated. Mm. That's and a very like, good point. Part of the Elemist's flaw is that he's not playing to win. He's playing to win the way he wants to. Right. Yeah. To right? Like so, vindicate this view of the So universe. he's not he's not looking at the, the rules and trying to dominate. He's bringing something to the game from himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And it does actually go back to that idea of like interference and what kind of interference is acceptable. Because I think there is a sense in the book, or at least I got a sense in the book, that the Elemist is doing the right thing by interfering in benevolent and minor ways. And mm-hmm. that's structured at the beginning as how the software of the game that they're playing is designed, right? That um, it, it's it's designed for minimalist intervention, that you, you set one small thing in motion, and then the game, the software plays itself out, and you see what your minimalist inve- intervention did. And that he takes from that, that actually he was right, 
and that you should have this, like, that's the game design you should be using is these minimalist interventions. And so rather than, you know, coming in with all guns blazing, he like changes an orbit slightly by adjusting the asteroids belts or whatever it is. And I, I thought I was wondering... The butterfly effect. He teaches it to the animals. Yeah. And I was thinking about how that applies to the animals themselves. Like... Oh, yeah. Just They cannot people. make a huge effect usually. Yeah. So it's sort of minimalist interventions in ways that That's make so the invasion slightly harder. Okay. I have an observation that might make you appreciate this book a little more, Gray. So that thing you were just talking about, I thought maybe it was just a Tumen trait, this idea of like benevolent meddling or whatever, but we learned that Ketran society is based on like wise ones, mm-hmm. these elders that kind of dictate how society runs. Mm-hmm. And when the polar crystal folks come over, they're like, hey, we invented democracy. <laughs> and all of the other Ketrans are like, no, that sounds bad. Like we listen to our elders and they're good. Like democracy, where like you guys are making your own decisions and being all rebellious. Like, whoa, what a crazy idea. We don't like it's that. So funny after 43. Well, right. And and the the Elmist yeah. then never learns the power of pluralism as a force for balance, right? Yeah. Which is, I think, the the virtue that people who subscribe to democracy would endorse. Sure. Right. So like even though the Elmist becomes poor. He he yeah, doesn't. But, but it's just he doesn't. Him right, right. Indi- he just gets horcruxes. Which is a huge missing piece. It would be fascinating if when he has coming out of the father thing, if Tumen became a tiny, tiny fraction of who he was instead of the essential and controlling force. Mm. That would be a totally different way for this to go. Mm. But it's like, it is almost like if you have this, again, unipolar world of good God and bad God, Mm -hmm. that leads to a certain kind of society. And Mm -hmm. you can see like, we have a lot of examples from like human religions and stuff about how you think about morality between the force of good and the force of evil. Mm -hmm. But a more anamorphsy type ending would have been the Elamist and his friends who are not part of him, Mm -hmm. but are all equals Mm -hmm. are gods ruling together, Mm -hmm. right? Like if it was Elamist and Aguela and Menno and Cryak, who's kind of like... Yeah, yeah, and lack of a, if they're all constantly arguing about how to meddle, that's kind of like the pro-democracy outcome. Yeah. But we get very much the pro-Ketran outcome here. It is not here. pro-democracy. Like it the, is not on the ship. The crystal and the crystal that, like, is like, we're democratic now, is like, yeah, they're doing some cool stuff with the airfoil, but they also bring the alien invaders yes. by being stupid. And then when they all escape, or the 70, yeah, however many of them escape on the ship, there's this line where they're like, some of those people wanted to democracy on this ship but that is not how spacecraft works there has to be a commander so instead i just made the person most in charge most who most wanted democracy to be my second in command and that was our compromise and i was like is that a is that a compromise would we call that a compromise like again it's the sort of noble adversary he needed that person and, who was and he's like check, i'm like, going down to the surface and menno's gonna totally betray me while i'm gone and then menno comes to save him yes, and they all die and then they all die Although Meadow's like, I had to like at least look like I was going to save you, or you know, I would never have been able. To he just—they were in love. Meadow didn't want to admit it. He's just Sundari. Yeah. Sundari? I don't know how you said it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's yes. that. Wow, where where have my slash goggles been? I didn't even realize they were in love. This is terrible. Which would have made it so much cooler if Meno had become Cryak. Yes, that would have maybe Meno was no, because Meno was dead. Never mind. Yep. Super yeah, dead, yeah, decaying yeah. on the father. This book and then was his gross. mind just like da- uploaded but, into. But here's the thing: like, if it was rivals 
you know, if they were frenemies who became godlike enemies, mm-hmm. then there's the hope for reconciliation mm-hmm. that obviously doesn't exist between oh, Elmist and Cryo. Oh, yeah. So it's like, again, if you want this, they, like, it's clear that what they want it to be is a struggle between good and evil. And I think, I think, Greg, your point is just that that's like a fundamentally boring compared to the other options. Yeah, I think, I think it would have been really interesting if they started out as frenemies and there is that sort of inherent possibility of reconciliation. But too many lines were crossed like Cryak did too much evil like that that possibility dies like that would mm. be really interesting yeah. or like if Elemist and Menno beat Father together and then split and they each mm. had like half that would have been right great. that would have been really cool I would have loved that why didn't we get that book though Menno was also like kind of pro adaptation and and instead of like this kind of stagnation that that uh, Tumen was for so I don't know if he'd be like fully cryak but if you went if you really yeah, leaned no, into I like mean, yeah there would need to be more he would have to be a slightly different character yeah. if, you, if you really leaned into like the whole uh you can't trust aliens they'll they kill us all and then you just went well what if i kill them first but yeah there are yeah. others this thing where tuman was like mm. anti-adaptation and like sort of pro the past i feel like does that thread just get kind of dropped yep yeah. that's what happens yeah. is that thread just disappears. No, no. It, Elmas totally comes around because he he becomes transhuman or transketrin after after his second life. Right. He like uh, he embraces Menos, but like, yeah, I guess that. I mean, that's oh, true. a little bit, but like it just. I feel like he still he still valorizes his Ketrin form. Yeah. He's, when he when his avatar looks at him, he sees the shriveled up Ketrin body uh, having like pride of place. You know what the most implausible part of this book is. It's that the Pemelites don't have wings. Mm. <gasps> I don't believe do we, it. Do we know that they it's don't? It's all a lie. Don't the Chi kind of look like them? They might have decided, we want. We don't want robots to fly. Why wouldn't you want a robot well, maybe, to fly? Maybe the That's robot like can objectively fly, amazing. But, they, but their wings are just hidden <gasps> away. Because... She can fly! <laughs> <laughs> that explains how Eric can move so fast. <laughs> That's how uh, Lord got to Australia. She didn't actually hitch a ride on a Smiled ship. herself on the blade ship. Yeah, yeah, she yeah, opened yeah, up right. her beautiful fly. robot wings and flew across the, across the world. Oh my gosh. This is my new favorite headcanon that the chi can fly <laughs> and i do want i do want to have to tell you about the uh probably the worst use of z space which is very personal go on okay when i was a kid and reading these books i had kind of a weak stomach and i felt nauseous a lot for reasons and if I, and i felt like if i thought about anything it made it feel worse but if i thought z space zero space just meditate on that concept then i didn't feel bad so that's what i did a lot <laughs> Really? That's amazing. And it just it all came back to me when I was looking at the, the episode titles. It's like the Z space has no taste. <laughs> yeah, you can focus on pushing it out. <laughs> what a great meditative else. system. I love that. It, yeah, that's a great I practice. Was a weird, weird tiny world, okay? No, that's I think that's super insightful. Yeah. I mean Z space is a weird thing to call it, but yeah. <laughs> well, I mean it's a universal symbol, so of course you're gonna call it. Yeah. What's your pretentious thing? Because I really want to hear it. Um. Okay. Let me just. Uh, I wrote. I wrote a bunch of it down so I didn't just uh, forget everything and be embarrassed. Nice. Okay. Uh. Full disclosure. I, f- I started really thinking about thinking about this after the Morph Club episode on the book. Oh, nice. nice. Okay. We're finally stealing some ideas <laughs> from Morph Club, even though we haven't listened yet. Yeah. The guest on that one talked about reading that reading it when um at the end of childhood having the sense of their life changing. So this is not really original, original, but it is related to that. So I'm just gonna go off that. Mm-hmm. Basically, to live, to survive terrible things, you change, sometimes dramatically. You adapt in big and little ways. And having adapted, there's a point when you cannot return to who you were like it never happened. You're different, so is the world. Home is different, 
you're still you, too, and they don't cancel each other out. They, they both exist. Mm-hmm. You can become unrecognizable. You can be completely alienated from things that, and people that were so important to you. When you do get past something huge, when you, when you survive and you overcome, you also leave something behind. You lose something, and yet you have to keep going. You have to keep going, and something new pushes up out of the soil, like how weed seeds sprout for years and years after the original plants were died. There's always there are always new reasons to keep going in time, and if you let them. And this is just just for the quote from the book: "You make what you had a can of the life you have." Mm. But um, there, that's done. It feels very relevant to like now, especially. Yeah. But this is like, like this is stuff I, I thought like... about way before that. But it is relevant now. I guess that's the thing. Yeah, it's sort of always. I mean, relevant, yeah, that's but, the yeah. seeds that are just sprouting now. Yeah. <laughs> No, I love that. That's a really good point. It's interesting that a couple things. So Tuman never considers trying to reset things, mm. mm-hmm. right? At some point, mm. he's completely like, I can't go back. He goes, yeah. Right, he goes, so, yeah, I could go to Cat, but it will only cause me pain. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And it's interesting that like what you just said, the Elma story is one of like trauma and change because of it mm-hmm. and how he has to keep going. But it's interesting that it's coupled with that power fantasy of each time he becomes stronger Mm -hmm. and then it's only because he finds another foe that he experiences more trauma and becomes stronger so Mm -hmm. it's very much like the the truer thing that what you were saying is like you can't go back and you're changing but you're not necessarily ever able to go and right all of the wrongs just because you're limited in what you can do Mm -hmm. but the elemist at least keeps being tempted by that mm. I can fix everything because I'm yeah. like he never learns humility in the way that life maybe teaches you humility as a normal person. Mm. Yeah, he says he does. <laughs> He's lying. Probably not. No. Yeah. No, I like that point. I mean, and it's it's a really interesting point for the animorphs too that once you've experienced trauma, you can't go back to where you were mm-hmm. before the trauma started. And that's something that they've had to learn and as the series ends they're going to have to deal with more and more trauma. And I I hope that that's kind of part of it. And it'll be interesting to see how these books sort of deal with that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's really true. I realize you guys just said this, but like every step of the way, like it's constant loss for Tuman, mm-hmm. like every step of the way and constant growth and power. Mm-hmm. What a weird two things to have happening at the same time. Yeah. Also, the like this book is just really well written and this the sudden and yet still somehow very slow destruction of Ket mm-hmm. is so devastating. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I did not see it coming. It goes from like he's trying to figure out how much he should be thinking about this moans thing that's happened to him. <laughs> yeah. And then he sees his crystal get blown into pieces. And then it's like the Capuchin ship shoots flechettes at the crystal. And then it, it's yeah. something like the crystal's entirely painted in the blood of Ketrins. And then it falls it's out of the sky. Awful. And it's like miles and miles high. So he can, minutes later, he can look down and still see his home crystal falling. And like, Mm -hmm. it's just that it comes out of nowhere and it's such total destruction Mm -hmm. is, it's like so powerful. It like really has stuck with me. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not really any better when he faces father and, you know, Mm -hmm. it gets a little more abstract when he's fighting Cryak, I guess, but it's still pretty. Yeah, you don't see the destruction. Yeah. um, But it's still devastating. It's it's really rough. Yeah, the first, the first two parts of the book, of the book are the most affecting to me and the like brackets, but just such loss and Mm -hmm. well, we all go through loss. And it's amazing how much I care given that the book is just about two men and like, he has mm. no narrative equal. Yeah. Like like mm. you were saying, there's no banter. Like Lakava 
and Menno and Inadar are just enough of the seeds of a character that you mm-hmm. kind of like you would get attached to. I like Flacker a lot. He I was like, like the Doctor McCoy character. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Just yeah. getting crankier. My, yeah. my note on that is. Do you love a cranky scientist? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One specific cranky scientist? Just or? yes, but also in general. <laughs> yeah, he was great. Or he's like super mean to, or at least, you know, crabby towards Tuman at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, you sponsored me to be in this ship. <laughs> and like, was like, yes, we needed a brilliant loser. So good. So good. Also, I just like the name Lakava. It's fun. Oh, yeah. Aguela really didn't get the same characterization no and and okay yeah. let's talk about yeah. it yeah good segue why 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 does every species we meet have the same gender <laughs> dynamic and why is it all gender essentialism like right? it just drives me up a wall i hate it every time it made me so angry that was my mm-hmm. 90s moment oh the rare female gamer yes you didn't need that line right? at all unnecessary so unnecessary did they think it wasn't gonna seem plausible or did they think like oh this will make it more relatable like what was the point of that i don't know but i hated it and then she's she's uh his muse when he's when he's tangled up in father and you know that's not like like in the end in in aggregate that's kind of annoying yeah so the thing this is where the i i love a lot about the gaming stuff in this but it takes the idea of gaming to win and dominance that is prevalent in like gamer culture, especially in the United States. Mm -hmm. And it makes it like a universal thing. Mm -hmm. And it's, it actually strips it from its context as like a cultural force Mm -hmm. in American life. And if you think about the rise of like incels coming to the fore, Mm -hmm. all of that Mm -hmm. stuff is prefigured in gamer culture that existed in the eighties, nineties, two thousands the whole Gamergate scandal and all of that yeah. stuff and the idea of dating as a game that you can win and yeah. playing the numbers game and stuff mm-hmm. like all of that gaming psychology stuff is like so very much like American males over the past ah, 40 years. It doesn't have to be a universal game yeah, thing. Yeah. And so that's also what struck me about the misogyny of it is it's like... Yeah. Like they won't be plausibly gamers if there are girls who do it. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like I guess that that assumption is so telling about yeah. the blinders here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's not that girls aren't competitive, right? It's just it's like yeah. there are so many contingent reasons why mm-hmm. what we think of as gamers are the way they are in the year two thousand. Yeah. It's a specific cultural phenomenon, not a universal truth about games. Yeah. Yeah, this book Or gender. To your initial <laughs> point. <laughs> yeah. This book I mean, was Aguela the only female? Oh, I guess there was like the cool Jiglet. like um the Yeah. Te- yeah, Jicklet. Jicklet was cool. <laughs> yeah, it's oh we don't just have one female character, we have two. Yeah. But like neither talk. of them is important. Yeah. <laughs> they never talk. Does not pass the Bechdel test at all. Mm-mm. And I feel like this series as a whole started out well with like the creation of like Cassie and Rachel you know could have done three girls two guys whatever you know but like just keeps like sliding off the like keeps losing the minimal high ground it had gender wise you can't even blame ghostwriters for this one no it's so true it's like just so many of the characters were just thoughtlessly male and I mean of course and this is what you would expect out of something coming out of the very early 2000s like there's no question that like oh yes of course this other species and all other species have two genders male and female those are the genders like it's just mm-hmm. really they just that's just not 
clearly not on their radar even a little bit. Yep. My 90s moment actually was uh, when they find what is clearly Earth and it's a nine planet system. <laughs> yes. And there's life on the red planet and the blue planet. That was cool. It's like the life on the red planet was obviously yeah. doomed. Yeah. Oh, my other, just since since I was talking about 90s references, I, I didn't really get into, like, in my summary, how cool the language was about all of the, the cat stuff. I feel like Apple mm, did a great job cool. coming up with, like, yeah. terms that were understandable, but just, like, a little bit different enough. And at some point, Tumin and Aguela are flying off to the dance by, and he says, we 4 effed. <laughs> it flew free, fast, and furious. <laughs> and I was like... Aw, way to anticipate the Fast and Furious <laughs> franchise. Yeah. Fast and Furious and Second Life were like, it's like, wow, really calling the Very names ahead of stuff their time. before they yeah. happen. Yeah. Are there other things that we want to get into? Like, I loved Father, but I'm not, I'm not really sure there's a lot to get into that besides that's really creepy. Oh, it was really so creepy. creepy. Yeah, the tentacles grossed me out. Yeah, just, just like the whole thing where they where they first encounter it. It was just so good and suspenseful, and then the whole build-up. Yeah, that was really well yeah. done. I I realize I got at this a little bit in my summary, but the thing where they're like, we have to find a world that's just like <laughs> right. ours, and we won't have any kids until we do. So dumb. That was the stupidest yeah. idea I've ever so heard. So dumb. You, there are only 72 of you. Have all the kids you can. Have yeah. infinite have, children have them, right have now. Stored in, have stored in until you find something like me or something, but like... You know, do that whole it's, embryo, frozen embryo so thing. But also, like, it was so dumb, not least because as you're, as the book was describing this world, it was sort of emphasizing how unique it was in that, like, yeah. other aliens came to visit and they were, like, shocked oh, that they were, like, yeah, floating crystals. What the hell kind of civilization is this? So you know that you're weird. It seemed like they can build their own crystals, so I guess they were just trying to find a planet that could support it them. Ha- it needed but to still. have enough, like, thermal lift in order yeah. to support their wings supporting like, the, the giant The thing crystal. is, I, I, they, have this, they mentioned this, like, dichotomy between, oh, we'll have land-bound wingless children, or we'll go looking for this perfect planet. When, like, it's just get a planet where you can put engines on a crystal and then have flying people who, do, who like... <laughs> compromise. Yeah, they didn't really understand what compromise no, meant. No, that but word I mean, like, was not just, like, used appropriately. Of, yeah, had a bunch of little, little colonies or whatever. Then that would be no, some different But I guess it issues. also, it does make some sense. I mean, we were talking a little bit about trauma earlier. Like, they saw their planet blow up. They might not be thinking the most practically in terms of like the future of their civilization. Mm. They're all like even 63 years later, like this was a really devastating blow. Like sure. I mean, I think they should have figured out how to like have kids, etc. Yeah. But they probably are more like emotionally reacting to this thing than really thinking practically yeah. about their future, which is unfortunate. But maybe that's a catchin thing. Why not? Okay, so the this talks about like the theme of gaming comes up as like, okay, well so if you know the rules of the game, you can figure out how to win. The point of the game is to win. Mm-hmm. And that assumes that games are about this like zero-sum competition between two opposing forces where one completely and utterly annihilates the other one. And even though those are how games are defined in this book, mm-hmm. Tumen is an example of someone who brings something in externally. And he says, I want to win in my way it's metagaming right yeah and so there are uh, a lot of theories of like player types and player psychology as to like why you get into games hmm. and so there are all sorts of 
fun ones. So there's the uh, there's a classic one in role playing games, which is the GNS triangle. With what's the point of a role playing game? Well, there are people who are like gamers, right? They come in it with the idea like, well, there are rules and I want to win, right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like the scope of gaming. But people point out that there are like narrativists who are like, I want to like play a game or to tell a good story, right? So it's like, it's n- I'm not really looking to dominate. I'm looking to like have a narrative experience that is fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Or there are like simulationist style gamers who will be like, I want to play a game where my actions have very precise realistic consequences and the game enables as close to a simulation of real life as possible with all of the trappings that come with that which may not be a satisfying narrative or the ability to win in any consistent meaningful way right so like already there's kind of like a diverse array of ways to approach it if you think about game design you might think of other player categories so like when people are designing magic cards they think of player personality types and they think of them as three boys unfortunately (laughs) timmy johnny and spike and so again (laughs) here spike is the gamer who just wants to win spike is going to buy magic cards that allow him to build the the winningest deck however Mm -hmm. he can to beat other people at the game but timmy is the kind of player who's like whoa this card is like really cool it has big numbers on it i'm gonna put out some cards with big numbers because i think that is cool and the game lets me do cool stuff even if like i lose more often than i win it's I feel cool playing the game. <laughs> Johnny is kind of like the smug kid who's like, well, I have the strategy where I can use only goblins and no elves and capitalize on black mana. And then I found this loophole in the rules that means 10% of the time I win in a really surprising and cool way. So huh. like two men is definitely a Johnny. He's like, I'm going to come in and do my like minimal intervention thing that's pro peace and I'm going to win sometimes Mm -hmm. and accept all the losses because i feel good when i win my way right so i'm tired (laughs) just listening (laughs) i'm sorry no no i just like i never played magic and no no no, like i'm i love this explanation it's so cool and interesting i didn't mean i'm tired of you or the explanation i meant like imagining myself trying to play magic the gathering and like dealing (laughs) with those three personality types like i i'm exhausted okay so he's a johnny does that mean Cryak is a spike? Yes. Okay. Cryak is a classic mm-hmm. spike. Great. But there's more to, as usual, when you boil down things into like three categories, you're missing a lot of nuance. And so a lot of these like threefold ideas of player uh, types have been expanded on. Magic the Gathering actually now talks about two other types of players who, so they've expanded from the three to five. I think they're still probably all boys. Um, <laughs> and in the on the role-playing side of things, it's, again, been more diversified. There's this um, theory of player types called, like, Robin's Laws about what players want to get out of, and I won't go through it all in excruciating detail, but the point is what people, again, what people bring to games, some of it is that more gamist or spike type, I want to win, I want to be the best, I want to dominate... But a lot of people show up for the social phenomenon of playing a game. Mm-hmm. They just want to like be in the room where it happens. They don't care so much about like the outcome of the game. Hmm. Or people who are interested in solving puzzles or like uh, exploring interesting tactical systems as a way of achieving mastery or of having the oppor- maybe like a certain type of not 
power fantasy, but like living as a different kind of person, Mm -hmm. whatever that looks like, whether it's like leads to winning or losing outcomes, right? So like, I mean, this is not necessarily great science, right? But this is all borne out through like a lot of, it's a taxonomy derived from observation. So like, Mm -hmm. it's pretty clear that while spikes may dominate what you think of as, you know, boys who play games in America in 2000, it is not actually why people play games overall. So I wanted to nerd out a little bit and just point out that this idea of a zero-sum game, yeah, it also like erases really a lot there of board games these days, games? right, or co-op yeah. games, where you work together against the game, uh-huh. right? But the Elmus isn't working against the universe, he's working against Cryak, who is an right. evil opponent hmm. who wants to flip the table if he can't, if he doesn't have a chance to win. Yeah, that's a really yeah, good point. Yeah, and I asked... I asked earlier, like, what does it mean that this is a game? And this book seems to be defining it as two opposing sides, and it is the zero-sum situation. And that's not necessarily what a game has to be, yeah. or like what defines a game. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit, it's a little bit narrow. Yeah. Hmm. Thanks for letting me go on my GNS and other typologies rant. Our pleasure. Informative. Let's talk about the music a little bit. Absolutely. It was, I think, probably my favorite part of this was the music. It's just described so beautifully. I was going to read some of this description, uh, his first intro to music, when I was like, wait, is he talking about music? Has he never heard music before? Ketron's not of music? Apparently not. So Fathers just picked up this instrument. The result, it was, it was like nothing I'd heard in life or a dream. Yeah. The sounds were not mere sounds. I don't have words to explain. Maybe no one does. The sounds touched a part of me I'd long forgotten. The sounds mm-hmm. made me think of Aguella, of home. Of the stars and the sun yeah. and the clouds and of all the beauty, sadness, joy, and laughter mm-hmm. I'd ever known. It was really nice. And I I love the thing about I don't have words to explain. Maybe no one does. It reminds me of, uh, mm-hmm. I think Ursula Le Guin had a line about like, you can't say what mm-hmm. a story is about. If you can just say what it's about, you wouldn't need to tell a story to say it. Mm. And it's like, you can't say yeah. what the music sounded like, because if you could just say it, you wouldn't need the music to communicate mm-hmm. that. Mm. So it is this sort of magical communicating something that you can't yeah. communicate otherwise. And we haven't seen much music in these books, have we? Not no. much. Nice is neat. <laughs> so, nice okay. Neat. So nerding out again, I, I love... Again, from like a game design perspective, that music is the thing that breaks father, right? Because again, there's this theme of like software, you know the rules. If you know the rules, you can beat the game. What's the point of playing it, right? And so there's a difference here defined between a game, which is again, maybe a narrow idea of what a game could be, um, like a competitive two-player zero-sum game, right? Mm -hmm. Versus play, which is what music is, right? And it's it's also music is something generative, like language. You can explore it in an infinite variety of ways so it is not just that it like it feels nice because as a lover of music music carries the day but music itself is something that requires the ability to play in a way that father doesn't have father can repeat known winning strategies from his dead captives but since he's a lifeless sponge that's all he can do and he can't create new music yeah, I mean, he's doing the like, he can do the four chord song that everyone loves. But to some extent, I kind of read that as like, what the Elemis is doing is like freestyle jazz. Mm. He's improvising, yeah. he's making it up and putting his soul into it in a way that the father really can't do. And the game responds. Um, and I just loved that. And the game responds. Exactly, and there's the, yeah. the line about, 
They heard the loneliness and in that expression of loneliness found comfort for their own. Mm -hmm. The part that doesn't quite track is that being good at music shouldn't make you really good at chess. (laughs) Um, But that seems to happen for Tumen. I kind of got it as like father had been thrown off his game. But although you're yeah, right, yeah, now yeah. that I remember, it's like there's something about like learning this music had like it says a lot about it says a lot about Tumen. I think yeah. I think this is unreliable narrator territory. Yeah. I do wonder because okay, we don't see a lot of music. I'm just curious if if Avogrant, like if either of them is a musician or they have musicians in their family, mm-hmm. because none of the Animorphs is musical. At some point, like Marco sings, and they're like, "Margot, don't sing," you know. But like, yet I can't think of another instance of like music being a really powerful force. It was mm-hmm. such a, like a surprising. Most you get is like a here. whale song, and that's very different. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. we do get mm-hmm. whale song. That's a good callback. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, this idea of like music as transcendent, yeah, is there. Okay, I just wanted to bring up for just, we don't have to talk about it, but fodder for people who are out there wondering, can we find more to Cryak? Um, I just want to read a very emo passage where the Elemist is like, they're they're meeting for their confrontation and the Elemist is like, you know, Cryak, life has advantages over death and Cryak like cackles or whatever a giant red eye does and then says, life is short. Death is eternal. Yeah. It's like so emo. I love it so much. I don't know what, again, I don't know why Cryak feels this way, but if this is a strongly held and like validated through experience belief, maybe Cryak could be an interesting character. Yeah. What if life is bad? What if we're all wrong and life is bad and we should all be dead? (laughs) Maybe Cryak is right. No. I mean, that's my whole complaint about Craig. It's like, it could be a really interesting characterization. And instead, it's like, hmm, not. I have a, I have another observation. I mentioned that it is unrealistic that the Pamelites were created by Cryak but don't have wings. This does explain two things. Why Tobias is the Elemist's favorite and why he didn't turn him back into a human. Why would he even have <laughs> the ability to fly? Ability he... to fly? I mean, there, it's possible that really uh, what Tobias wanted was to stay a bird. <laughs> But it's also possible that, like, the Elemist, still being Tumen inside and a Ketrin, oh, was like, um, probably this is what he wants and just, like, wasn't able to see it quite He right. doesn't appear to Tobias as a Ketrin in 13, no, does he? Because <gasps> doesn't he appear as, like, a bird creature? Yeah, bird and human. <gasps> Are we sure it wasn't as a Ketrin? Because Ketrins have wings like birds, sure. Okay. I do wonder if he's if, if he's if he's was blue as a Ketrin, though, because... Like, he's blue when he does his human avatar thing with the mm. 20 years. Oh, okay. So Tobias is a mixture of human and bird. The Elmus is a wacky says, bird. Then from the vague turquoise fog around me, I saw it flying towards me. It was a bird of prey, a raptor, some undefinable shape, part falcon, part eagle, part hawk. It had a snow white belly and reddish brown back and a tail that spread to show a dusky rainbow of colors. That's not a catcher. No. That's a bummer. That would have been cool. But yeah, I mean... I think that it's still a plausible reading that Tobias, what he really wanted was to stay a bird and have the morphing power. But it's also possible that the Elemist was not reading his desires completely objectively. Just saying. That may segue nicely into my updated and slightly updated endgame mm-hmm. prediction, unless anyone has more things to share. No, I'm good. <laughs> no, let's wrap it up. So my last, the last bit of the endgame that I want to predict, I said earlier that I didn't have any changes, but I, I lied. I have one change. Which is, in the epilogue, when one of the Animorphs is dying, the Elemist says to this character, I did not cause you to be one of the six. You are, you were, a happy accident, an unwitting contribution from the human race to its own survival. 
I have therefore narrowed down Uh-oh. who dies to three possibilities. Hey. Okay. Oh, gosh. It cannot be Tobias, because he was purposefully there as part of the Elemis plan, as was Cassie. And it can't be Axe, because Axe is not a contribution to the human, human race at all. survival. And he's not human at all. And therefore, my endgame prediction is the person who dies has to be either Jake Marco or Rachel. It's an interesting theory, but you have to that commit. It's an interesting theory. You can't, you can't say one of the Animorphs dies. No, and I'm I, narrowing it it's down. It's a coin flip I'm now. It down. It's a coin flip now, Gray. <laughs> I have seven more books over the course <laughs> of that seven books. Maybe I will get more information. But well, right now, I've narrowed it down to three. What about, That's pretty you didn't good. like Joy's theory that it could be David? <laughs> no. David, you David matter. showing up you for the matter. next book. <laughs> How dare you? No, that's that's a good. I think that's a good observation. We'll see okay, if it yeah. bears out. We'll see how that goes. Yeah, it's intriguing. The royal proclamation. One of these three. I've come along, come around on this book. I really, I like the book. I don't like the Elemist. Well, that's fair. Legit. Okay. That's okay. legit. Yeah. I like Tuman. Maybe I don't like the Elemist as much. I like the Elemist in a way where I wouldn't like him if I knew him. Oh yeah, no, that's <laughs> yeah. definitely oh, yeah. That's so good. That's very well put. Yeah. That's how I feel pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> All right, that seems like a good note to end right. on. Yeah, Joyce, Joyce, thank you so much well, for joining us again. Great. It was great getting to come on again and ramble endlessly about about meaning I find in an old book. I, know. I mean, that's I all we do. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the is. best part. It is a lot of fun. <laughs> Hope you keep doing well in this weird world of ours. Thank you. We'll see you online. Bye. Yeah. If you want to find us, we are at animorphology.com and at animorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. All right. I'm just going to do that over right. again. Doesn't count do against win? the 60 seconds. Who the F are you? Was it worth it? <laughs> the three questions. <laughs> <laughs> Why is this war different from all other wars?